Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It's no surprise that the influence of Western popular culture is everywhere, even in our affairs of state. Remember when Tony Dolan wrote and Ronald Reagan spoke the phrase evil empire? It was just five years after the release of the original Star Wars, and the empire was on all of our minds. The comparisons were immediate. When was the last time you were pulled over for speeding and wish you could just wave your hand and call on the power of the force? When we look at politics and politicians today, we see the tug of the dark side. When George Lucas created Star Wars, he was fully aware of the primal power of narrative. He was a longtime devotee of Joseph Campbell and knew that Star Wars could become a palette of archetypes that would burrow deep into our consciousness. The only question is how much Lucas and Star Wars reflected the culture of the time, or in fact, through its success, helped to create and expand its own culture and its own iconography. Today, almost 40 years after that premiere, legal critic and behavioral economist Cass Sunstein deconstructs Star Wars for the 21st century. Cass Sunstein is the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard, where he's the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy. He's a columnist for Bloomberg View, a frequent witness before Congress, and an informal advisor to many public officials in national, state, and local government. He served as administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs and is the author of numerous books. It is my pleasure to welcome Cass Sunstein here to talk about the world according to Star Wars. Cass, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. When one thinks about the world according to Star Wars, it's it's interesting to think of the scope of this, that that it's really a 40-year period, and certainly Star Wars has changed a bit, and certainly the world has changed a lot. Well, there have been uh, massive of movements in society in terms of science and uh, governments and everything under the sun. Uh, But human beings have not changed. And so the resonance of the movie reflects their universality. And talk a little bit about how you came to to re-examining this, to begin to look deeply into Star Wars, partly because you were showing it to your son. Yes, if you told me, you know, two years ago that I'd write a book about Star Wars, I'd say it's more likely that I had uh, joined a <laughs> professional basketball team and was, you know, playing point guard for the Lakers or something. Uh, and believe me, that's unlikely. Uh, what happened was my, my little boy, then five, got obsessed with the movies. And that made me focus on two questions, really. The first is, why did Star Wars become so successful? What made them kind of define certain features of our culture. And the second, how on earth did George Lucas come up with this stuff? Uh, What was his own creative process? And what might that be able to tell us about success more generally and about how creativity works? And as you started to look at the reasons for the success and, and really the archetypes that were so much a part of Star Wars, talk a little bit about some of the conclusions you began to draw. Uh, The thing I learned in terms of the success of the movies is that first, um, there was a kind of echo chamber of enthusiasts early on who loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. And as they expressed their devotion to the saga, uh, the circle of enthusiasm just expanded and expanded. 
So there came a time in the 70s where if, if you didn't know or like Star Wars, there was something wrong with you. And once people, you know, at the age of 15 or 22 or 40 felt that there was uh, something there that they had to be in on, then, then it was bound to uh, kind of take over. And that happens with many things. You know, it can happen with, with a product. It might be a new computer. It can happen with an idea, the idea of liberty maybe. It can happen with a political candidate. Um, uh, President Obama and Mr. Trump have both benefited from something like that. Uh, so that's the first thing, the, the ever-expanding echo chamber. The second is what George Lucas was able to do really and this was by design, was to draw on myths and religions of many different kinds and to distill them into their essence, really, a tale of a hero's journey. And that a tale, the hero's journey, not only can you find it in uh, Christianity and African myths and Indian myths and Judaism uh, and Islam, you can find variations on it, but it also kind of maps on to the dreams and nightmares that each of us has. And, and he, he got at that. And I don't think in the last 50 years anyone has done uh, nearly so well. Though Superman and Spider-Man and Jessica Jones and Harry Potter, <laughs> these are all variations on the same theme. What did Lucas touch on? I mean, in many ways, so much of what you're talking about in, that Lucas understood in terms of that hero's journey was really talked about a lot by people like Joseph Campbell and really getting to the underpinnings of that. Lucas found a way to, to transform that into popular entertainment. Absolutely. So Lucas loved um, the old Flash Gordon serials. He loved the 1950s and 1960s uh, tales of some uh, person in outer space or maybe in the West, and there are big adventures and there are collisions between good and evil. He loved all that. So that's popular culture. And uh, he also loved the, the myths and such. And he also had, I think, deep in his head, stuff about uh, parents and children, uh, materially about freedom of choice and materially about attachment and detachment. And those three themes really, as it turned out, fathers and sons, uh, attachment and detachment and freedom of choice, those aren't in the uh, 50s serials. They aren't really in popular entertainment in the... Uh, simultaneously fun and uh, kind of giddy way that the Star Wars gets there and also in the deep way that Star Wars gets there. So I think that's what he was able to produce a kind of holy wedding of, of the most shallow aspects of our culture and the deepest ones. And it's interesting how it evolved, as you point out, the, the father and son idea wasn't even necessarily a part of the original creation. No. So uh, it's often said that he had it planned all from the beginning, that uh, Lucas knew the direction his tale was going to go, and he kind of unspooled it from an original source that he wrote down. Uh, I've done a lot of research now on this. Um, my day job is constitutional law and government policy, but I did do my homework on this. And in his original versions, Darth Vader was a very minor character. Uh, Luke Skywalker 
Parker was actually an old general in some of the original versions. And even after A New Hope, the first one that was released, it's pretty much crystal clear that Lucas had not decided that Vader would be Luke's dad. That when Obi-Wan says, you know, your father died a long time ago, he was a great uh, Jedi Knight, that was a... um, what Lucas had in his mind, suggesting that the father was a separate character from Darth Vader. It was kind of a burst of inspiration uh, that produced that amazing I am your father moment. And what makes that interesting is not just about George Lucas and how he worked, but that's often how writers and uh, athletes and musicians and artists, they work. They improvise. They're not planners. And you talk about the fact that that I am your father moment is is a defining feature of of art, of politics, and and even of constitutional law. Completely. So you can see the Supreme Court's great decision in 1954 eliminating school segregation as an I am your father moment. And uh, that's true in two different ways. First, uh, when the decision was announced, there was... Uh, in many circles in the United States, a kind of collective, oh my God, that this practice of segregation, which had been with us for many decades, and after the Civil War, the Supreme Court said it was okay, that practice was entrenched. And the idea that now our principle of equality forbids racial segregation, a lot of people thought, you know, no. But then there was, uh, for many, an instant, and for our culture, an eventual sense, of course. So both the sense that the continuation of the constitutional narrative in this case produced an episode, school segregations out of bounds, which which yielded a collective gasp, but also either a quick or eventual, oh, definitely. And that's what an I Am Your Father moment does. It's when something kind of switches the narrative in a way that makes you be both uh, amazed but also have a spark of recognition. When the Supreme Court says same-sex marriage was, uh, states had to recognize it as a matter of constitutional mandate, that's a little more recent, and we may not be at the stage where there's an of course, but actually the social reaction to it was much more agreeable than many people expected, even though as late as 2006 to say the Constitution requires states to recognize same-sex marriage, that would have been very uh, out there stuff. The Supreme Court's decision was an I am your father moment in the sense that it reversed our constitutional narrative, but also uh, at least a lot of people are now saying, oh yeah, certainly. And and it's tied to, as you talk about, it's tied to the existing narrative as well. As you talk about those things, it's interesting to see the way it's tied to it both legally and also socially and, and the two different paths that are traveled in that regard. Yes. So, so you can't have uh, an episode, let's say, in Star Wars and constitutional law and political life that... Uh, rejects any kind of continuity with what came before. So if the Supreme Court decided, you know, we're going to announce uh, a constitutional right to polygamy tomorrow or next week or even next year, there'd be a sense, really? That, That defies practices and actually judicial decisions that have been with us for a long time. Or if a presidential candidate said, you know, 
I don't think much about the United States and its history and its constitution. I have a new system, which is my system, and that's what I'm here to tell you we're going to do. Uh, some people have accused successful candidates of doing something <laughs> like that, but they always claim and you know, try to make the claim credible continuity with what's come before. So Donald Trump says, uh, I'm going to make America great again. And uh, President Obama often says, that's not who we are. And he claims, you know, continuity with the we. And that uh, fidelity to a legal decision, to a, a political practice, even to aspects of our own lives is kind of built into what happens. So if you mark out on a new path, if you decide you're going to change your career or change your city or maybe marry someone, uh, you are often at pains to, to claim continuity with, your, with yourself, that you're the sort of person who, when things get stuck, you you know, go elsewhere, you take a new job, or you are an adventurer, and you go live in uh, some place you've never lived before, or you um, aren't going to be uh, lonely, you've always been committed to that, so you're going to marry somebody. So all of these things are uh, often brave, and sometimes reckless, but typically they are not uh, fundamental breaks with, with who we are. And it, that's essentially what history does for us, that that historical reach back is really what keeps us grounded. Completely. So uh, Martin Luther King, who was you know, a force for change in important ways, uh, was also an amateur historian who said, if we're wrong, then the Constitution of the United States is wrong. And historians, as you say, often develop a narrative which is composed of episodes and they claim and usually their art and their knowledge is sufficient that it's a justified claim that the narrative actually is is ours if they're talking about us or if they're talking about you know France or Russia or China it's theirs and it's not just a random connection of dots I mean, I guess the question is that can you have change then without that historical underpinning, that the change only is successful and can take root when it has the right connection to that history? It's a really deep question, and uh, it's, it's not obvious what the answer is. I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, the great social theorist Edmund Burke uh, thought that lasting uh, successful change is based on foundations in in the past so you can do a lot of new stuff but you have to have the the tradition as your the ground on which you stand i, I tend to think that something like that is true but uh, true revolutionaries um don't uh, Star Wars is with you and right. me, by the way. Note that there's a restoration of the Republic is what's, the, what's sought by the Jedi It's not and the rebels. It's not creating something wholly new. It's a, it's a restoration. And that's the kind of notion you need some foundations for big-time change. Right. Making the Republic great again. Completely. Yes. Completely. And whether... You know, whether you voted for President Obama in 2008 or whether you are <laughs> supporter of Senator Cruz or Mr. Trump in 2016, uh, all three of those and all three sought, and in the case of Mr. Trump, seek 
significant change from what's happening now, they, they are claiming about making something great again. To what extent is part of it, when talking about Star Wars and as it relates to some of these broader themes that we've been talking about, the notion of, of good and evil, of black and white, and the value of that in the success of something like Star Wars? Uh, I think it's fundamental. So one kind of way to think about Star Wars is it depicts a time-honored struggle in the human heart and in uh, you know, political life between the light side and the dark. Uh, and that's there. Um, and that's certainly the most uh, simple lens um, through which to view the movie. But it, it, they actually get deeper about that. Notice that the uh, the the hero of the uh, first six, uh, Luke Skywalker, he goes dark. He almost kills his father, and, and he's in a kind of frenzy when he's doing that. And he's uh, pretty close to falling to the emperor, uh, as his father did. Um, and then there's that amazing line when he pushes back and says, "You failed, your highness. I am a Jedi like my father before me." That, I think, is a very moving line uh, because he's claiming that his father is not Sith, is Jedi, which actually is true in in a sense. He was Jedi first, and it actually becomes deeply true in the sense that uh, the, his father saves him at the end. He abandons the dark side. So the best character, the purest, the farm boy, goes dark, and the worst character, the most evil, Darth Vader, he's, in the end, the... The, the hero of the whole thing because he sacrifices his life to save his son and symbolically, I think, all, all, save all of us. I mean, it's it's interesting to think about it, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, too, the way so much of this has gotten caught up into other aspects of the culture, even something as, as remote as, as Reagan talking about the evil empire in 82. Right, completely. So uh, uh, Hillary Clinton ended one of the democratic debates by saying may the force be with you right uh, mr trump had a whole episode of one of his shows dedicated to star wars characters with whom he's interacting um uh, president obama ended a news conference saying in december 2015 i've got to go see star wars and senator cruz made a big star wars reference for one of the debates so it really has entered our political culture as well as our families and has sustained for so long. I mean, coming back to, to that 40 years we were talking about earlier, that it's powerful enough that it's, that it's sustained for so long. Yes, that's, that's the amazing thing, really, that there are some things that are spectacular successes, like Jaws, um, a big movie, and you, know, you can take your pick of the favorite one. There's a movie called Independence Day. It's recently had a sequel that's not doing so great, but Independence Day certainly doesn't have a cultural... Uh, uh, defining feature. So I think what what it did was first benefit from this expanding pool of echo chamber uh, so that it kind of swept up uh, like a whirlpool kind of uh, many millions of people. And it also has themes that really are the stuff of dreams and nightmares. So if you have a, a dream that goes bad, you might see a character kind of like Darth Vader, even if you haven't seen the movies. And if you have a dream that's 
good, you might see Princess Leia or Obi Wan Kenobi. They're really iconic figures in the in the in our minds. And that dream mythology and, and nightmare mythology has been part of successful horror films as well. I mean, that very same primal narrative. Completely, completely, and it's it's nice that I think I'm not a big fan of horror, but it's nice that. Uh, there's, I think, one moment in Star Wars that verges on horror, and that is in A New Hope when there's the potential torture scene with Vader giving a truth serum to a person who turns out to be his daughter. That has some of the features of horror. The job of the hut scene, I think, doesn't quite because it's a little too uh, broad and, and ridiculous. But you're absolutely right that, that horror strikes many of these same notes. Is there a danger for any of us? I mean, certainly this is, is, is great fun, and it leads to so many other interesting conversations. Is there a danger in, in reading too much in, into Star Wars in this case, or, or any piece of popular culture in that regard? Sure. So if you think that Star Wars, you know, tells us basically what to do in the Middle East, <laughs> or, if you think that, or if you think that Star Wars is a... Uh, a tale about, you know, how America is an evil empire. Uh, even though George Lucas thought some version of the second, at least at one point during the original trilogy, I think that's reading uh, too much into it. But there's a lot you can read into it, which is there, you're finding it, which isn't isn't too much. So the themes of uh, rebellion of uh, freedom of choice, of disintegration of democracies into authoritarian systems, of boys needing their mothers. Uh, those are all there. Cass Sunstein, the book is The World According to Star Wars. Cass, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. A great pleasure. Fantastic questions. Thank you.